Welcome to The Landscape, your show about Western public lands and the outdoors. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in beautiful Denver, Colorado. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, coming to you from Salt Lake City, Utah. Today's show is about forgotten 20th century conservation heroes, Avis and Bernard DeVoto. Author Nate Schweber has a new book out on the couple, and he sat down with me to talk all about it. I had a blast reading the book and recording the conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that, let's do the news, which is, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, a.k.a. the big climate deal, finally passed the Senate. Uh, It is now waiting for a vote in the House. It is expected to pass there maybe as early as Friday of this week. That would put it on track for President Biden to sign it into law sometime next week. You have probably heard a whole lot about this bill already, so we won't repeat that, but feel free to go back an episode if you want a recap of all the really good public land stuff in there. The bill brings the federal oil and gas leasing system into the 21st century by raising the rates that companies pay to drill on public lands. Unfortunately, at the last minute, the Senate parliamentarian ruled that a provision that raised bonding rates so that drillers would have to pay up front to cover their cleanup costs was not eligible to be passed through that reconciliation process, so it was stripped from the bill at the last minute. We will see if bonding reform ends up in the companion permitting bill that we know very little about other than it's coming and Joe Manchin really wants to pass it, or if that bonding reform is something that the Interior Department will need to address with a rulemaking down the road. Right. So you may have also heard that the bill locks in oil and gas leasing on public lands. Um, So there are a few reasons why that's actually maybe not as bad as it sounds. Um, The first is, of course, because the bill, the climate benefits in the bill outweigh the leasing issues in terms of overall emissions. It's also because oil and gas companies already have just about all of the public lands worth drilling on already under lease. That's according to a former strategist for Anadarko Petroleum and the current VP at energy analytics firm S&P Global. So the provision in the IRA locking in new lease sales may not actually be as bad as it sounds, especially since companies will need to pony up cash to nominate federal lands now, five bucks an acre. Um, and that, you know, well, I guess currently is is free and anonymous because the bill hasn't passed yet. But once it passes, there will be a cost to sort of speculative speculative leasing, which is when companies just lock up lands because they can. Um, and of course, we won't know exactly what the outcome is until the bill passes and the Biden administration holds its first lease sale with the new rules. Obviously, a whole lot for us to keep our eyes on once this thing becomes law. But Kate, let's talk about this interview. I am excited because... I wasn't a part of the interview. I I missed it. So I get to hit this one cold. Uh, Who are we hearing from? And and what is what did you and Nate talk about? Sure. So Nate is a reporter. Um, He's actually done a fair amount of reporting on Bears Years um, and spent some time in my former hometown of Bluff. So we chatted about that. Um, and yeah, the book is really interesting. It's a profile of Bernard and Avis DeVoto, who are two public lands heroes, really, of the 20th. Sorry. Yes, the 20th century. <laughs> That's the one before this one. Um, and I hadn't heard of them. Um, maybe some of our listeners have, but they are definitely less well-known than other 20th century conservation heroes. Um, yeah, de- definitely not a household name that I had heard of before. 
Okay, well, that says something because I think you know your stuff. Um, <laughs> and there's, it was just such an interesting book. It was really well done. That the history in the book was really interesting. There's some really, there's sort of a story, an overarching story about just a major effort to privatize public lands by politicians like um, McCarran and McCarthy, who I think most many people will be aware of that's McCarthy mm-hmm. as in McCarthyism um okay. and Joe Joe okay. yeah but <laughs> yeah good old Joe um and so even if you're not interested in Bernard and Avis as as people um I think it's still worth buying and reading or at least listening to this interview because they there's there's so much more in the book than just their biographies well as they say roll the tape We're joined today by award-winning journalist and author Nate Schweber. His new book, This America of Ours, chronicles the lives of 20th century public land conservationists Bernard and Avis DeVoto in their fight to save our public lands from greedy cattlemen and corrupt politicians. Nate, welcome to The Landscape. Kate, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm a fan of landscape. So let's kick it off with, um, I think, most people's first question. Bernard and Avis DeVoto aren't exactly household names, even among environmental advocates today. So tell us a little bit about them. Who were they? Yeah, um, uh, Bernard and Avis DeVoto, um, I argue, are two of the most uh, not only important conservationists, but one of the most important couples of uh, the mid-20th century uh, of mid-20th century America. Um, Bernard is from Ogden, Utah. Um, and Avis is from the Northern Peninsula of Michigan, and together as a literary duo, him as a very prolific writer, her as not only a very sharp, a very thorough, and a very creative editor, but also sort of this uh, ballast that that kept him stable uh, through a lot of um, uh, mental health turmoil that he went through in his life. Um, together, they produced some of the most important nonfiction about the West uh, that was ever written, but also some of the most important conservation journalism uh, that really left a, a public lands legacy that we still have today. If it had not been for the Devotos and their diligence and their vigilance, um, the West could have lost nearly all of its public lands in the 1940s, and it could have seen the dismantlement of uh, the National Park Service in the 1950s. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely get into details of all of that here in a second. Um, my my next question is, as you mentioned, Bernard DeVoto was from Ogden, but he went to college at Harvard, and he basically spent most of his life in Cambridge. Um, why did he care so passionately about the West, despite living so far away from it? He loved the West. He loved the beauty of the West. His uh, maternal grandfather was a farmer. Uh, He was a Mormon. Uh, He came from England and he started a farm. And that just the way that he had to farm in the desert West made an enormous impression on young Bernard, who would have to go out at three in the morning and, and water the fruit trees. Um, but he was able to tell from a young age that there was such a scarcity of water in the West that the West needed vast amounts of conserved lands to protect that water, that water that his grandfather depended on for his farm. So 
that really um, sort of set him up um, uh, intellectually and philosophically and psychologically for a lifetime of um, loving uh, the West and caring about the West, even though, yeah, after he went to Harvard University, he returned to the West only for short living stints uh, and for research trips. Hmm. So now let's talk about how he became a conservationist. You tell a story, and of course, there, there are a number of experiences he has that that make him care about conservation. But but the first one you mention in the book is um, after he and Avis are married, they go to Utah for a trip, and they're camping up in the mountains, or they're staying in, a I think, a civilian a conservation cabin. corps yeah. cabin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they experience a flash flood. Um, what was it about that experience that turned Bernard into a conservationist and really lit that fire in him? Again, when he was a boy, he saw dust storms blowing off the Wasatch Mountains, and he knew that those were bad for his grandpa, who had a farm at the base of the mountains. And he knew those dust storms meant that uh, there wasn't enough vegetation anymore on the tops of those mountains. There was too much logging. There was too much grazing. He goes away to Harvard. He comes back with his new bride in the 1920s. And throughout the 1920s, um, and this was during a time, this was the Albert Fall era of um, of uh, sec- Secretary of the Interior Ship, um, there was rampant logging and overgrazing on these public lands in the West, and flash floods were devastating communities all over the West, Pueblo, Colorado, Silver City, New Mexico. And in 1925, Bernard brought Avis home to meet her father-in-law, to introduce her to his hometown, and they were nearly swept away in one of these flash floods. And when Bernard had went up to this cabin, he remembered this mountain valley in the Wasatch Mountains as a paradise of his youth, and he got there and he was horrified by what it had been reduced to with clear-cutting and overgrazing. And then this flash flood came, and that really, um, you know, um, that that sparked an anger in him that lasted the rest of his life. Hmm. Now let's talk about his writing. Um, he wrote a column for Harper's, and then, of course, he wrote a trio, I think, of, of best-selling mm-hmm. nonfiction books about um, the West. Yeah. I am wondering if you could just sort of explain for listeners like what his writing meant and it at the time um and how well known he was and really how it gave him influence over policymakers he was an incredibly controversial writer he had very strong opinions and he stated them very forcefully um no matter what cows you held sacred bernard devoto would attack them that went for that went across the political spectrum he was a radical free thinker um but he his area of expertise was the West. He was enraptured with Western history, and he was able to write these Western nonfiction history books um, with a cinematic style. And that's what made them so powerful, is that they were, they were like watching history actually happen. He would get fan letters from Westerners telling him, thank you, we've been waiting for books like this. Um, but he also wrote these very sharp pointed columns, as you mentioned, for Harper's Magazine, the Easy Chair column. And that's where he got into current events and politics. And that's where he really did his crusading public lands journalism, 
was mostly in Harper's Magazine. So between the two, between having this vast historical knowledge about the West, but also having a very up-to-date and very sharp-pointed and uh, incredibly um, uh, incredibly uh, prescient political analysis in Harper's Magazine, by bringing those both together, that's what gave him such incredible um, you know, um, influence and power and authority. Um, one of his mentees was Wallace Stegner, who went on to have the nickname Dean of Western Writers. Um, before Stegner, that person would have been Bernard DeVoto. Wow. Awesome. And, and I guess we should mention at some point that, that your biography of Bernard DeVoto is actually the second one. And Wallace Stegner wrote one, um, fairly (laughs) soon after his death. Is that right? Yeah, I wasn't in- I wasn't intimidated at all about <laughs> trying to uh, write a book on a subject that Wallace Stegner yeah. had already tackled. Yeah, um, uh, um, Stegner's biography came out about twenty years after Bernard Devoto died, and okay. I tell a little bit in the book about why it took Stegner so long to get around to it. Um, but they were they were not only friends, but Bernard was really. Um, instrumental in launching Stegner's career because he read some of his early novels and he wrote rave reviews about them. But throughout their lives, um, uh, Stegner would go to Bernard for advice and counsel and you bet Bernard DeVoto would give it to him. And it was Bernard, uh, and Stegner credits him for this, it was Bernard DeVoto who really turned Stegner into an environmental activist. Stegner was happy to write novels and write stories, and Bernard was telling him, write about conservation, state it forcefully, put it in, put it in the press, get out there with this, with this message. Wow, wow. Yeah, well, what a yeah. gift that was to conservation. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. and ironic that Stegner is now more well-known than Devoto. Stegner Um, eclipsed him. Yeah. I get, well, let's get back to, um, your book. Sorry about that, that um, (laughs) detour. Um, so, so Bernard Devoto's first big, I guess, win or victory as a conservationist was thwarting this land grab that you talk about in the Mm -hmm. book. Um, some Western cattlemen Mm -hmm. were, working to privatize a large number um, of acres of public lands. Tell us... Hundreds of millions of acres, yeah. Yeah, like so many. Um, How did he find out about that plan, and how was that plan supposed to work? It's a a charming-ish story. Um, In 1946, Bernard and his family, Avis and their two boys... They embarked on this trip that Bernard had been dreaming about for a lifetime. It was a research trip. He was going to write about Lewis and Clark. He wanted to take his family and follow their trail all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And they started to pick up signs that things were not great in the West when they arrived in the Dakotas. And they saw the beginning of the construction of the uh, Garrison Dam, which was going to flood out some 150,000 acres of land belonging to the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara nations. And Bernard knew from his deep knowledge of history that these Native American land dispossessions always went hand-in-hand with some of the biggest public lands frauds, some of the biggest public lands scams in American history. So 
he put his radar antenna up because he got the feeling that there might be another one coming. And it was in the Range Riders Cafe in Miles City, Montana, where Bernard DeVoto went because he knew that it served the best steak in America and he had wanted nothing during years of war rationing more than a delicious steak. He goes to this uh, Range Riders Cafe and he eavesdrops on a, quote, very loud, very drunk cattleman. And he got confirmation that, yeah, his hunch was correct. There was going to be a legislative agenda worked up that ultimately would have transferred every acre under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Land Management, which was around 150 million acres, to states uh, so they could be immediately sold off. And then for that same process uh, to be repeated inside around 75% of the acres inside of national forests and also additional acres inside of national parks, national monuments, and national wildlife refuges. So all told, this land grab could have been as many as 230 million acres. So the Devotos, after getting their tip in Miles City, they raced around the West networking. They met with Stegner. They met with Joseph Kinsey Howard, a great journalist who wrote the book Montana, High, Wide, and Handsome. They met with Ansel Adams, and they eventually got their big break when they went to Bernard's hometown of Ogden, and they met a Forest Service ranger named Chet Olson, and he was able to get him uh, documents of a secret meeting in which this land grab plot was laid out. And Bernard put that in Harper's Magazine in January 1947 in a story called The West Against Itself. And yeah, that that was that's one of the most important pieces of journalism in conservation history because it stopped that 230 million acre land grab. Wow. Wow. And, and how did it stop it? I think that's one thing after reading the book, I was still just kind of amazed by it just doesn't seem like a columnist has the same power today um, to change the <laughs> minds of Congress. So how did that sure. work in practice? Did you figure that out? <laughs> well, what, what, what the land grab was, the land grab was a suite of legislation. And Bernard had such a deep knowledge of history and such an intricate knowledge of politics. He knew how unsavory this legislative suite was, um, that he he strategized that the only way for this thing to actually get passed into law would be if it was introduced at the very end of the upcoming legislative session, which would have been, the legislative session would have started at the beginning of 1947, it would have ended in March 1947. So he figured it would be introduced probably around the end of February so that most legislators who didn't know anything about public lands in the West wouldn't have had time to read it. Uh, you know, Western legislators who were all in favor of it because they were representing the biggest livestock associations out there, they could have put pressure on their colleagues to pass it. And then Nevada Senator Pat McCarran, who had a genius for overriding vetoes of heinous legislation could get it passed a probable veto by Harry Truman. So that was the that was the way DeVoto saw that this land grab could get actually passed into law. And by exposing it at the exact time that he did, he made legislators 
wary to go near it. Harper's mm. Magazine never had a very large readership, but it did have a very um, influential readership. A lot of members of Congress read um, read uh, Bernard DeVoto in Harper's Magazine. People like John F. Kennedy and uh, people like uh, Adelie Stevenson, governor of uh, Illinois. Um, people like... Um, Oh, I'm spacing out his name right now. But uh, the uh, uh, Paul Douglas, uh, senator from Illinois, he was an avid reader, and they were far from the only ones. And a lot of times, Devoto, he would write an article, he would write a column for Harper's Magazine, and he would have copies sent to every member of Congress. Hmm. So that was a way that he could communicate directly with members of Congress. And because he did have such authority, um, his words meant something. Hmm. So... You just mentioned McCarran was sort of behind or or at least in step with that effort to privatize all of the Bureau of Ma- Land Management lands. Um, oh, yeah. And McCarran was buddies with Joe McCarthy, who I'm sure most of our yeah. listeners are familiar with. Um, both These are both senators, McCarran from Nevada, McCarthy from Wisconsin. Um, and mm-hmm. um, they went to great lengths to paint DeVoto as a communist. Um can you explain why that was so important or why they did, why they wanted to do that and also how it affected DeVoto's ability to um, influence Congress in the way you just explained? Well, you know, one of the things maybe to think about when we think about how nasty our politics are today is that uh, 70 years ago, they were little better and, um, calling a political opponent communist in the late 40s through the 1950s was the most vile and wretched and putrid and horrible thing you could call a political opponent. So there was great value in demonizing one's political opponents as communists. Um, only the most unscrupulous politicians leaned into it, and two of the worst offenders were Pat McCarran and a guy who really was, uh, um, you know, kind of a congressional backbencher, you know, somebody that nobody, most Americans didn't know about, Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy really looked to Pat McCarran as a role model and a father figure. And so, you know, when Bernard DeVoto thwarted this plot to get rid of all the public lands in the West, which Pat McCarran was in favor of, um, Pat McCarran's allies and associates started a not-so-subtle whisper campaign saying that Bernard DeVoto, therefore, because he opposed Pat McCarran's plans to get rid of public lands, must be a communist. And that really escalated and escalated until Joe McCarthy um, made it a a linchpin of his campaigning for Dwight Eisenhower in the 1952 election. And what it meant for the DeVoto family, um, Bernard DeVoto's articles was that family's source of income. And when he started getting called a communist and Joe McCarthy started attacking magazines that published Bernard DeVoto, he started getting blacklisted. Uh, He got blacklisted from the Saturday Evening Post. He got blacklisted from Reader's Digest. He got blacklisted from Fortune Magazine. These were well-paid magazines. So, um, So it not only meant that 
you know, conservation's most important spokesperson of the era had his microphone cut when it was needed mo when his voice was needed most, it also meant that the family was suddenly looking at losing its livelihood. Hmm. Yeah, it was uh, a large part of the book is during that time period and it really was interesting history um to learn that the the sort of um, mccarthyism had an anti-public lands angle i had not thought about that um and it was <laughs> it makes Very sense much. though because public lands mm. are um for the people <laughs> so mm. um let's talk about bernard's second and perhaps biggest conservation success or all i don't know maybe not biggest <laughs> another big one yeah. um, well it's it's it yeah <laughs> his his effort to fight this dam that was proposed um inside of dinosaur national monument in utah um yeah can you explain why the stakes were so high in that fight and and how it played out well understand that you know pat mccarran uh, Devoto's nemesis, Harry Truman said the truest thing that was ever said about Pat McCarran. Truman said he is always for something if he can get his hand in the money barrel. So during the land grab of the 1940s, when McCarran was midwife to a plot to sell off as many as 230 million acres of public lands, um, that those lands and the wealth from those lands would have flown disproportionately to his cronies. And come the 1950s, that evolved into McCarran knowing how to use the levers of power and government to use government to funnel public funds toward investments that would benefit disproportionately his Western cronies. And the number one way he learned how to do that was through the Bureau of Reclamation, which builds dams all over the West. And so McCarran would flood the Bureau of Reclamation with money, and he would withhold money from the National Park Service. He did this because he served on the um, Appropriations Committee that set the Department of the Interior's budget. So in the 1950s, there emerged this plan to build a dam inside Dinosaur National Monument, which straddles the border of Colorado and Utah. The dam would have been on the Green River. It was going to be called the Echo Park Dam. And what was so crucial about this dam was that it was a first domino. Uh, the Bureau of Reclamation and its sometimes rival, sometimes partner agency, the Army Corps of Engineers, their employees had plans drafted up to build dams in other national parks all across America. Uh, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Glacier, Kings Canyon, Mammoth Cave National Park, Fort Donaldson um, Na National Historic Battlefield. Um, so once this dam was able to be built in Dinosaur National Monument, these other dam plans could move forward. So it wasn't just about Dinosaur National Monument. It was about the integrity of the National Park Service. And, of course, behind that were anybody else that wanted any other national resources on public lands, uh, logging companies that wanted to get into the national forests, and grazers who wanted to mow down uh, – Bureau of Land Management Lands, all uh, miners, all of these special interests, they all were 
rooting for this Echo Park dam to be built. So that's what Devoto spent the last part of his life fighting against. Wow. And tell us more about his fight against that. How did he stop? Did he stop it? And how did he how did he do it? It was it was incredibly complicated because with the land grab of the 1940s, that was a relatively, relatively simple matter of him doing great investigative investigative journalism work and finding a small special interest outside of the government who were trying to claim enormous uh, resources of public wealth for themselves with this uh, with the issue of dams and national parks that was a lot more complicated because the people that were uh, promoting these dams all were inside the government and the uh, environmental costs versus economic gains that was a lot more convoluted and it was also incredibly incredibly complex. And so uh, Devoto had to deal with all of those complications. And what he ended up doing was he built a coalition and he knew politics well enough to know what elements this coalition needed to give it an actual shot of stopping this dam. Um, in the mid 1950s, you know, members of Congress, there was Devoto had raised such awareness about the threats dams posed to National Park that letters that members of Congress received about the Echo Park Dam were 80 to 1 against it. There was a coalition of Americans that was something like 8 million large that were against the Echo Park Dam versus a coalition in the West that was about 100,000 large that was for the Echo Park Dam. Most Americans were against the Echo Park Dam, but because of the... Uh, levers of minority power in the U.S. government, Devoto knew it wasn't going to be enough. But he was able to bring into this coalition, he had the moral authority to bring into this coalition strange bedfellows uh, that helped give it strength. And those strange bedfellows were fiscal hawks. These fiscal hawks were not Bernard Devoto's allies on issues of funding the U.S. Forest Service funding the National Park Service, but they were his ally on the issue of funding the Bureau of Reclamation. They didn't want their tax dollars being spent on wasteful Western dams. So by bringing together this coalition of people who loved national parks, who loved natural beauty, who loved recreating outside, and these fiscal hawks who didn't care about any of that but didn't want to see their tax dollars wasted, that's the coalition that Bernard DeVoto was able to build that uh, was, hopefully no spoilers here, was ultimately able to get the Echo Park Dam knocked out and killed. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, <laughs> I live in Utah, so I know there's no dam there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe other well, people that's don't good. That. Hopefully you've been able to see it. Okay, excellent. Good. <laughs> So I guess I kind of knew how that fight was going to turn out. Um, All right. So Nate, I want to switch gears a little bit. The The book was incredibly well-researched, like the depth of detail. You described what people were wearing or what, what Bernard and Avis were wearing when they went on these trips through the West. Um, how did you research this book and how did you get all of that amazing um, detail? 
Ah, well, thank you. Um, I was very blessed um, with this project because um, the Devotos, plural, were prolific writers. And in addition to the thousands of published pieces that Bernard had in his lifetime, he also was a letter writing machine. And so all of these uh, articles that he wrote, all of these books that he wrote, and all of these letters that he both wrote and received, they're in an archive at Stanford University. And Avis Devoto was no less a prolific letter writer. And her letters are at uh, Harvard University. And so Again, I was I was I was blessed with an abundance of riches that, you know, most any question that I had, you know, if, if I was a journalist and I was interviewing them and I was asking them to recount an episode for me uh, and I wanted to ask, you know, what was the temperature that day? What were you wearing that day? What was the weather like that day? What did you eat that day? Um, those details would be in these letters that the devotos wrote. So I was, um, I was very, uh, fortunate to have had those archives as a re as a resource to work with. Wow. Wow. How long did you spend just out of curiosity going through those letters? Wow. Um, <laughs> not to, not to betray too many tricks of the trade, but, um, uh, <laughs> I was, I wasn't as, I wasn't able to spend as long in the actual libraries as I would have loved to, but I did spend a good amount of time in each, but I did go in there with my trusty iPhone and I was able to take photos and then I could read those <laughs> at my leisure. Uh, many, 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 many hours of leisure. Nice, nice. So I'm curious, you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and as we spoke a bit before we started recording, about Ryan Zinke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I guess you know where I'm going. Do you see any parallels to the conservation battles that Devoto was fighting back then in today's politics over public lands? Yeah, and I, I don't think that we've um, seen the last of it. And Devoto never, Devoto didn't think that he saw the last of it. Devoto said, that the sun never went down on a bad idea in the West. <laughs> and so, you know, it was it was fascinating because, again, I was working on the book, you know, starting about 20, late 2015, and then, you know, going through like, uh, you know, early 2021. Um, and, you know, I was doing history, uh, right, you know, studying history in the, in the 40s and 50s, and I was learning about a movement that grew in the West to sell off public lands and a movement to uh, destroy uh, a national monument in Utah. And then I would, you know, uh, look at the news and I would learn about a movement in the West to sell off public lands and uh, a plan by the administration to uh, destroy two national monuments in Utah. So there were a lot of historical uh, echoes. Um, and I, you know, Devoto predicted that. And, um, you know, if history is uh, any guide to the future, and it's the best guide to the future, um, you know, that's, um, yeah, you know, you can probably, you can probably set your clock by it. Hmm. Do you see any um, parallels to Devoto? Is there? Do you think that there's anyone working today um, in conservation ah. or in 
in writing <laughs> to defend our public lands the way he did? Right. Or do you think that the the era of Devoto is oh, that's that's a Devoto type? I know that's over? that's that's a that's a great and a heart wrenching question. And uh, and I, you know I can tell you that you know it, you know Stegner in his biography of Devoto he asked uh, the same question in the seventy in the seventies and he came mm-hmm. up with the same sad answer. He was like, you know, boy, could we use his voice today in the nineteen seventies? And it's just not there. And I I think you know, and I, I I'm not going to take such a, a pessimistic uh, tone. Although I you know I think there's only one. Devoto, one Bernard and one Avis Devoto, um, but you know, I mean, you know, his spirit is very much alive in in writers like uh, Timothy Egan, uh, a wonderful columnist who also writes magnificent nonfiction books about Western history. Um, you know, people like Terry Tempest Williams, certainly known in Utah, and so many young writers coming up, Indigenous writers. So. Um, you know, as as the media landscape fractures in places like Landscape Podcast, uh, you know, I don't think there is a, 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 you know, there's not sort of so much of a singular figure like Devoto anymore, which I think is unfortunate. But I do think that, um, you know, the information, the raw materials, the, the raw materials out of which Devoto was able to build uh, his histories and his columns, those are still out there. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's kind of funny. And I don't know how I feel about this, but the, when I asked yeah. that question, the, the answer that came into my mind was actually mm-hmm. Patagonia. Oh, <laughs> because okay. do you remember yeah. during mm-hmm. Bears Years, they yeah. put out that very controversial ad that said the president's like stole your, your land. land. Yeah, yeah. 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 The president. Yeah. And I, I, and of I, course, I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what issues you, with that, but uh, sure. Right. Sorry. I mean, it raises some issues because yeah, they are a company selling a product, but also they took a pretty bold, uh, and you know, controversial devotoin type of stance on that particular issue. So yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons, I suppose about, uh, um, corporate entities getting into the uh, information disseminating and analyzing business. Um, and so, you know, in the Devoto spirit, each one probably needs to be judged on its own merits and its own situation. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay, well, this is the big question, at least for me, mm. after reading the book, the big <laughs> mystery um, that I want an answer to is why was Bernard's legacy forgotten? Um it's a great question. And I, there's, I, there's a lot of reasons. And, um, like I had said, he was a very controversial writer in his day. And a lot of his forcefully stated opinions that were controversial in his day have become only more controversial as time has gone on. And, you know, a lot of that's probably for the best. He was a man of his era. So, um, you know, uh, I think people who consider themselves uh, left-wing don't embrace Bernard DeVoto today because, you know, he can write, uh, some of his writing can sound very jingoistic, uh, very pro-manifest destiny, very rah-rah America. Um, people Mm. who consider themselves right wing, um, 
uh, you know, a lot of times don't fully embrace Bernard DeVoto because he questioned the ethics of corporations, um, because he was a devoted, uh, passionate conservationist, a public lands conservationist, and because he was accused of being a communist, falsely, but he was accused of that. <laughs> so that kind of has left him without any sort of a base today that will say, this is our guy. Um, he also, you know, he also suffered from something that Stegner related to, which is that he wrote about the U.S. West, and Stegner in his lifetime felt that his work wasn't appreciated enough by Eastern tastemakers because it was about the West. And uh, Stegner thought the same thing certainly happened to Bernard DeVoto, that he got dismissed as sort of a, a, a curiosity, a regional writer, somebody who was writing about the West, who um, people in uh, uh, media, um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, people in, uh, oh boy, I'm having a a moment. You know, people who lived in places where media was concentrated, like New York City, just couldn't get what Bernard was writing about, Western history and public lands. So um, Stegner thought that, that Bernard's legacy suffered from that. And, you know, since that is the last question and the most important one, the w twist irony of all this is that the most remembered devoto in pop culture today which would have shocked both devotos, is Avis Devoto. Avis Devoto is much better remembered today than Bernard Devoto, and that's because um, during the course of Bernard's fight for public lands, Avis became best friends with an aspiring cookbook author living in Paris who sent Bernard Devoto a fan letter, Julia Child. And after Bernard Devoto died, all of the professional skills that Avis devoted to her husband of uh, idea brainstorming, copy editing, fact checking, indexing, and um, working with editors at big publishing houses, uh, she transferred all those to her best friend, Julia Child. So it's Avis Devoto who is responsible for getting Julia Child her book deals and for making Julia Child a star. And for the rest of her life, Avis the Widow, uh, she was as professionally devoted to Julia Child as she was to Bernard Devoto. So the story about Avis Devoto and Julia Child has been celebrated in a great book uh, called uh, As Always, Julia, which is a collection of letters between Julia Child and Avis DeVoto. Um, it was depicted in the movie uh, Julie and Julia. Actress Deborah Rush plays Avis DeVoto. And uh, right now, uh, there's a series on HBO Max called Julia, and uh, B.B. Newworth is playing Avis DeVoto wonderfully. And so uh, the Avis and Julia friendship is really a pop culture phenomenon, and she is the best remembered devoto. And that would have completely shocked her, and I'm sure it would have completely amused Bernard. <laughs> and it probably would have um, upset her a little bit, too, because she was shy of the spotlight, as you mentioned in the book. She, she was shy of the spotlight. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, she was, uh, she was a very private person and uh, very... Uh, to great measures to protect her privacy. I think, you know, honestly, I think she might have also felt that conservation was such an important issue that 
It's wonderful that people are fascinated with uh, French cooking and with the wonderful, magnificent career of Julia Child, but um, equal, if not more, attention should also be paid to conservation. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting to learn that Julia Child was also a fan of public lands conservation. So um, that was an unexpected tidbit. Yeah, Julia Child really has some of the best uh, quotes about public lands conservation that I've read. Like, it's wow. Theodore Roosevelt and Julia Child, if you want oh, really wow. awesome quotes about public lands conservation. Okay, well, I'm sure no one expected that. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll end on that note. Um, Nate Schweber, thank you so much for being with us. And your book, um, This America of Ours, is out now. So go get it, listeners. <laughs> Kate, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. So in lieu of our usual good news segment this week, I am inviting you to give us some feedback on the podcast. We've got a short survey for you with questions like what topics do you want to hear more about, what's your ideal episode length, and more. We'll drop that link in the show notes, and you can also find it in our August 11th Look West newsletter. That is it for this episode, folks. Uh, as Kate mentioned, if you don't currently subscribe to our Look West newsletter, it shows up in your inbox Monday through Friday. It's free. I happen to like it. Uh, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the best way to help new listeners find us. If you've got feedback, of course, go fill out that survey Kate just mentioned. We got some open-ended questions in there so you can really give us a piece of your mind we will also drop a link to nate's book this america of ours into the show notes and thanks so much to nate for taking the time to chat with me and thank you all for listening to the landscape mm-hmm.